The Lord be with you. A reading from the beginning of the Holy Gospel according to Matthew. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham became the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah became the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez became the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amminadab. Amminadab became the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz became the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed became the father of Jesse, Jesse the father of David the king. David became the father of Solomon, whose mother had been the wife of Uriah. Solomon became the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asaph. Asaph became the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram. Joram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah became the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah became the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Amos. Amos, the father of Josiah. Josiah became the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the Babylonian exile. After the Babylonian exile, Jeconiah became the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud. Abiud became the father of Eliakim. Eliakim, the father of Azor. Azor, the father of Zadok. Zadok became the father of Akim. Akim, the father of Eliud. Eliud, the father of Eleazar. Eleazar became the father of Mathen. Mathen, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. Of her was born Jesus, who is called the Christ. Thus, the total number of generations from Abraham to David is 14 generations. From David to the Babylonian exile, 14 generations. From the Babylonian exile to the Christ, 14 generations. The Gospel of the Lord. This is not public confession, so don't raise your hands. But how many of you arrive at this day thinking, I've so missed doing anything for Advent so far? 
it happens. Even though we know what Advent is, even though it comes around every year, it is amazing how the holy season catches us by surprise. And all of a sudden, we're deep into Advent, three weeks gone, and we realize as if for the first time, oh my God, it's Advent, and I've missed it. Good. Because today you get a reprieve. Today, Advent shifts. Advent has two parts. It does not have four weeks. It has four Sundays, but it doesn't have four weeks. Advent has a first part and a second part. The first part of Advent ended yesterday on December 16th. The second part of Advent starts today on December 17th. So you actually get the chance to start over. You get the chance to refocus yourselves because everything about Advent changes today. Yes, we still have the purple. Yes, we still have the candles. Yes, the homily will be too long. That doesn't change. But what does change is the tenor of the prayer of the church and the character of our scripture readings. Beginning with December 17th, and so for example, what doesn't exist in the liturgy of the Catholic Church is a Mass for Saturday of the third week of Advent. It doesn't exist. But Mass for December 17th exists. That's what we celebrate today. Over these next several days, from the 17th to the 24th inclusive, our scripture readings take a turn and they focus fully and exclusively on the events that lead up immediately to the earthly birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we no longer consider the expectation from a distant perspective, but from one that is very, very near. The prayers of our liturgy will also change. They'll have that note of imminent expectation. You may have noticed in our collect today the distinctively Marian note of the Lord who would be pleased to be born of, a virgin, of an ever-virgin mother. And now the church is focusing its attention toward being ready for that great day on which we remember the anniversary of Jesus Christ our God showing his face physically to the world for the very first time. And to help us get ready for that, we have now this shift in the tone of Advent, this shift in the language of Advent, this shift in the spirit of Advent. And so if you've done nothing or very little so far for Advent, today you can start again. If you've been working hard through Advent, here's your reward because now you get to build on that foundation that you have laid. And so the easiest survival skill for the late comer to the season of Advent. So easy that we all can do it. Open up a songbook to O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Because that song has its origin in the second part of Advent. This is the remarkable thing. That song is the result of the church making this turn at the end of Advent over these final days. 
and the verses of O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, each of the verses corresponds to one of the days between this period of December 17th to December 24th. Note how easy that is. And so the first day is the day of what's often verse 2 in O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, O Wisdom. Start with that one. And then each day afterwards, just follow the verses all the way down. Note how simple that is. And note how wonderful it is, because these verses, historically called the O antiphons, which the church prayed at night and then later incorporated into its masses for Advent, are ways of crystallizing the ancient expectation of the Savior. And note, how marvelous they are in that they name the Lord Jesus, they name the Savior, they name salvation in a very ancient and beautiful way that we often have trouble speaking today. And this is where it can be so very rewarding. In our regular conversation with one another and among ourselves about our faith, we rarely speak of Jesus as the wisdom who orders all things. We rarely speak of him as the Lord of might who thundered the law on Sinai. We rarely speak of him as the key of David or the dayspring from on high. And yet note how challenging and how wonderful these names of the Lord really are. O come, O come, Emmanuel, the verses are like a litany. And a good litany is based on the way it names the one to whom it calls out. And so over these days, there are a series of great namings of the Lord, of great namings of the mystery of salvation. And it's a simple thing. Just read the verse and think about it. Reflect on it. And ask you what it says about Jesus what it says about salvation, and what it means to open up to the Lord as if I am opening up to the breaking of day in my heart. Note how wonderful that is and how simple. Don't worry if you don't understand everything completely. It's good to let our faith stretch us from time to time. One of the great dangers of certain devotional exercises is when we understand everything, we fall into the trap of thinking we've mastered the spiritual life. And that is an incredibly dangerous attitude. But by all means, consider doing that. This simple resource that we've grown up with all our lives and often never realized how powerful and how profound it can be. This is why it's such a shame in so many of our parishes we never sing more than the first two or three verses of the song. Um, but all of the verses are there for a reason, and in the divine office, the prayer of the church in the evenings, each evening one of those verses is singled out. Singled out to be included and featured at a high point of that prayer. Just a simple one-sentence statement about who the Lord is that we are waiting for and desire to come. What a remarkably powerful and simple thing to do. That having been said, however, 
these days of Advent are about more than the verses of O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And we see that in the scripture readings that we are met with today, the very beginning, for example, of St. Matthew's Gospel. And notice that St. Matthew's Gospel begins with what many consider to be a tedious listing of names that we don't know how to pronounce. And that's just marvelous, because the simple fact of the matter is so much of human history is tedious. And if we attend to just the histories of our own families and our own communities, we quickly run into the fact that there are all of these names and generations that we can't pronounce them well either. And that's the truth. That's the truth. And so this lengthy listing of names that the modern mind, the modern heart, the modern attitude that says, oh, just get to the point, struggles with is a marvelous way to begin a gospel. And so note what St. Matthew is taking great pains to do. Because this genealogy is twinned with our first reading of the patriarch Jacob blessing his sons. And among all of his sons, surprisingly, it's not Joseph who was the good one, but Judah who receives this curiously powerful blessing that there will be a certain prominence over his brothers. That there will be a kingship which issues from him and which will never be taken away. And this promise of now a king from the line of Jacob, specifically through his son Judah, is part of what is traced in this genealogy that we hear. But St. Matthew, in giving us this genealogy, is conscious of doing a couple very important things. On the one hand, he is giving us the human setting for the incarnation of the Lord. Beginning with Abraham, continuing through David and the tortured history of the people of God, numbering the generations and showing how all of this movement through history, including things like the victory of the Exodus and the disaster of the exile, including those kings who were holy and those kings who were wicked. And yet running through all of this is a thread and a promise that is never broken, never cut, never forgotten, but comes to a certain completion in Jesus Christ at a moment where there is no crown for an earthly king of Israel to wear. And yet it happens. And in doing so as well, however, one of the things that sacred scripture is putting before us is that the divine Messiah for whom we wait is indeed truly human. And so note what we have here. The human origin and the human reality of the Lord, the life of Jesus Christ. A human reality that like any other human reality is embedded in a web of relationships that stretches across generations. 
But there's something else that's happening here that we all too easily miss. Because what St. Matthew is not telling us is that Jesus is the result of all of this. That would be to understand this wrongly. Jesus coming into the world is not the result of the call of Abraham. It is not the result of the blessing that Jacob prays over Judah. Jesus coming into the world is not the result of a promise that was made to David. All of those things have their origin in the fact that Jesus will come into the world. Jesus is not the fruit of Abraham's call. Abraham is called because Jesus is going to come. Jesus is not the fruit of a promise made to David. That promise is made because Jesus is going to come. The end is the origin of the beginning in these genealogies. It's important that we recognize that. We often get it wrong because first things always come first. But consider the disordered character of our own living where all too often we navigate without direction, without a plan, and we just wait for something to emerge from where we are. This is not how God works. God doesn't wait for something to emerge from where we are, because God knows where he's going. And so just like if you're building a house, in the order of time, the first thing you do is dig the hole, pour the foundation, and start with the basement, right? And the last thing you do is furnish the building. But the only reason you're digging the foundation is because you're planning on moving in. In fact, the shape of the basement and everything else is based on the plan the architect drew, putting the finished product before our eyes. And then the beginning happens in light of the end, in light of the goal. This is how the Lord works. Jesus doesn't come into history to a place that we've prepared for him because it's his place already. Note how beautiful that is. Note how wonderful that is. And note what that says about the way the Lord doesn't simply adapt to the disorder of our living but already has thought about it and already has desired to bring it into good order. And that principle of good order has a name, and his name is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, that one. And how good to reflect on that on this day where we call him out, call out to him as the wisdom of God who orders all things mightily. And that's not just a matter of saying, The solar system is in good working order, and look at the marvels of nature. Rather, the heart of man, the spirit of man, the destiny of humanity, all of these things find their ultimate meaning, value, and order in Jesus Christ. And note how patient, how mercifully, wonderfully patient the Lord is. In the tragedy of Adam and Eve falling from grace at the very beginning, the Lord is not quick to tear things up and start all over again. Rather, he is willing to play the long game 
of preparing a way and a place, a preparation that includes the call of Abraham from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to a land that the Lord would show him. But why? Abraham is called at that late stage of his life because much later in history, a son is going to be born from his line. Everything that happens between that call of Abraham and the birth of Jesus is ordered to and grounded in and given its full and deepest meaning in that coming into the world of Jesus Christ. Something Abraham himself didn't know when he looked in wonderment to the sky and was asked by the Lord if he could count the stars. And when he was asked by the Lord if he could count the sand of the desert and number its grains. And seeing that overwhelming impossibility, he said, of course not. And the Lord said, and yet from you, generations as numberless as this will be blessed. Even in that moment of extreme wonderment, Abraham could not have known that everything that was happening was at the service of the God to whom he was speaking, becoming flesh in the world, taking the flesh of one of his descendants. How absolutely wonderfully remarkable. And note what we see here. Note what we see here as we trace the bloodline of Jesus across its generations. How everything comes and is ordered to this moment. This moment in Bethlehem where he shows his face to the world, the true king, the true savior, the perfect and great and saving son who is given to us. And why? So that we might know him. How absolutely wonderful. This is one of the reasons why, as we set up our nativity sets, it's important to pay attention to the fact that the figures are often shown to be moving. The shepherds are walking. The kings are walking. They're going somewhere. And that empty manger in the center of the nativity set reminds us human life is ordered to Jesus Christ and finds its real meaning and its real value in responding to that ordering call of Jesus. O come thou wisdom from on high, who indeed doth order all things mightily. To us the path of knowledge show. Teach us in her way to go. And in just a few minutes, you'll come forward and you'll stretch out your hand. Oh, and you won't be saying, O come, O wisdom, because wisdom's here, and you're going to stretch out your hands, and you're going to receive him. Note how wonderful that is. Let him then enthrone himself in your heart, but recognize you're not giving him permission. Your heart's already his. Let him come in. Let him claim it. Let him take it, and let him put that household in order. For then that house will be happy indeed. Amen.